If you have your copy of Scripture in Acts chapter 25 this morning, Acts chapter 25, be looking at verses 1 through 12. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. Acts 25, 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Acts 25, 1 through 12. We have been in this series going through the book of Acts, and we will remain here until we complete it, of course. It says, Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea, that he himself intended to go there shortly. And so said he, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, He went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek escape of death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had confirmed with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. This message is entitled, God's Sovereign Hand of Protection to Accomplish His Will. In the early morning hours of October 5th, 1980, a young nursing student was brutally murdered in the Chicago suburb of Oak Park. Following the advice of well-meaning friends, Steve Linscott was a student at Emmaus Bible College. He told police about a dream he had had the night of the crime. Oak Park police later arrested him, interpreting his dream account as a roundabout confession of a psychopathic killer. Later, a jury found Linscott guilty and he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. There was just one problem. Linscott was innocent. Only after time in prison and numerous legal appeals, a process that lasted 12 years was Linscott free and vindicated. Can you imagine sitting in prison knowing you are innocent, separated from your wife and your children, except from brief visits, wondering if you had somehow brought all of this on yourself and wondering why God would allow such a thing to happen. No doubt they were hard years and yet 
They were years of growth and a growing awareness of the goodness of God. Here was Lynn Scott's own words. I've come to realize that we cannot judge God's purposes, nor where he places us, nor why he chooses one path for our lives as opposed to another. The Bible itself is replete with accounts of divine action or inaction that does not seem fair, that does not make sense except when viewed in light of God's perfect plan. Thousands of Egyptian children were massacred while a baby named Moses was spared. Jacob was a liar and a thief, and yet it was he, not his faithful brother Esau, who received the blessing of their father Isaac and of God. On one level, it makes no sense that God would allow his son to die for the sins of humankind, but God has a plan, a perfect plan. Church, we can sometimes go through hard times that may not be like Lynn Scott's times, but we can go through times that cause us to easily be frustrated with God. Paul was a devoted servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was at times hated. He was persecuted. He was falsely charged with a crime. Felix knew that Paul was innocent and yet kept him in prison anyway, hoping that he would be bribed from Paul's wealthy friends. And when he did not get bribed and Felix was recalled to Rome to gain political capital, Felix left Paul in prison. Festus was a different leader. He was a man who took action. And when he arrived in Caesarea, he decided to go to Jerusalem and familiarize himself with the situation there. While there, those who opposed Paul took advantage of the opportunity to present their case to the new governor and urge that Paul be brought to Jerusalem for a trial. Their intent was that they would murder Paul on the way. However, Festus was not going to allow the Jews to tell him how he should manage his affairs, and so he told them that they could come to Caesarea and present their case. And Paul, against, again, is standing before those who had made accusations against him, and it's the same old thing over and over again. They had nothing new to say. No new accusations. Paul could have easily become frustrated at this point. He could have easily thought, Lord, when will this end? I need to be presenting the gospel to the Gentiles, and yet here I am facing the same old garbage, the same old charges, but Paul does not become frustrated. Instead, he defends himself against Festus again. And then he realizes he could perhaps get, uh, Festus realizes he could get some political gain and offers to move the trial to Jerusalem. And Paul knew he wouldn't get a fair trial. And so he forced his appeal to Caesar. Here's what we have to understand. Is that behind all of this, behind all these struggles, behind all this frustration, behind all of these problems, God's sovereign hand is at work to accomplish his will which is to have Paul go to Rome let me read from you for you from Acts chapter 9 verse 15 which we've already had a sermon over this is right after Paul was struck blind by the Lord and Ananias is told to go to Paul and lay hands on him so that he would receive his sight Ananias is a little hesitant as could be imagined and this is how the Lord responds to Ananias in Acts chapter 9 verse 15 but the Lord said to him go for he 
is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so Paul is to bear witness to Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel, which is exactly what he is doing. Fast forward to Acts chapter 23. Violence had broken out between the Sadducees and the Pharisees because of Paul. He had to be rescued, and as he lay in prison, perhaps dejected, wondering what's going to go on, we read in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem so you must testify also in Rome church we must understand that God's sovereign hand of protection comes about to accomplish his will on his servants and there is something very freeing about trusting in the sovereignty of God The first thing I want us to see is this. Satan uses evil men against God's servants. Satan uses evil men against God's servants. Are you a Christian this morning? Are you a follower of Christ? I'm not asking you if you're a Christian in name only. I'm asking you, are you a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord of your life and does He exercised lordship in your life. If you say yes, then that means that you are a servant of the Lord. And that means that you should expect and even anticipate that Satan will use evil men against you. Now, we like to say things like God must be getting ready to do something big or something great because Satan is working. But that does two things. One, it gives Satan more power than he actually has. As if Satan can read the mind of God. And secondly, it says that followers of Christ are not doing their job. Here's the thing. If you are a servant of the Lord, then Satan is using evil and evil men against you, period. It's not because God is getting ready to do something great. It's because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And if, and if you're not, if you're not following Christ, well... Satan already has you. So he's not really doing a whole lot against you. Do not think for one moment that Satan is passively sitting by when a faithful servant of the Lord is seeking to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan is an enemy of the gospel because the gospel is the truth and Satan is the father of lies as Christ called him. And not only that, he is the enemy of the gospel. He's the enemy of every faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Now here, Satan uses evil men to come against Paul. He uses the Jews who want to murder Paul and he uses Festus who seems somewhat aloof to the situation. If Paul had gone along with Festus with what he had said, he would be dead. But let's be clear. Even though Satan is using evil men and even though Satan uses evil to come against us, they're no match for the sovereign purposes of an almighty God. First, let's look at this, this part under Satan using evil men. First, let's look at the Jews. The Jews' evil plot against God's servant. In these Jewish people, we have a tragic picture of the human heart separated from God as they seek to murder the servant of God. 
These were religious leaders of Israel, which was God's chosen nation. The nation of Israel had received God's covenant promises. They knew, they knew the word. They knew how God had called Abraham. They knew how he had preserved the lineage of Abraham through four long centuries in Egypt and how he brought his people out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. They knew all that. They knew how God had protected them in the wilderness and eventually given them the promised land. They knew that. They, they had access to the presence of God in the temple. They knew of the promised Messiah. And even though they had all this knowledge, they still killed the Messiah that had been sent to save them from their sin. And now they're bent on murdering the messenger of the Messiah. And Paul was one of their own people who had done nothing wrong. The evil men are doing the work of Satan, trying to silence the servant of the Lord and the gospel message, even though they were religious people. Despite all of their knowledge, despite how religious they were, they're still used by Satan. Satan will use evil men to fight against the truth of the gospel. These men feared the loss of influence. They feared the loss of position. When people refuse to submit to God's truth, they will seek to eliminate God's truth. Light always exposes the darkness, and the darkness refuses to face the light. And so rather than coming to the light, the darkness tries to snuff out the light it, so it can continue in darkness. These men are so opposed to God they're willing to murder his servant. And if they can't murder him, then they're going to slander him with false accusations. And that's exactly what happens. Festus is on the judgment seat. The Jews are standing around the courtroom. And Paul's in their midst. A barrage of accusations are brought against Paul. And they can't prove any of these accusations. They're all lies. This could happen inside or outside the church. When a group of people get together and decide to do the work of Satan, they often start off by, by lying and making false charges and false, false accusations. And they're doing the work of the father of lies, which is Satan. This leads us to Festus. So not only do the Jews come against Paul, but then we come to Festus. Festus seeking to please people rather than God. Seeking to please people rather than God. Festus is seeking to please the people. Festus knows the truth. Paul tells him he knows the truth. He knows Paul is not guilty, but he felt he has to please the Jewish leaders of the day. And so Festus comes up with this idea that, that, that would take the case out of his hands, freeing him of the issue. And it would let Paul be tried in Jerusalem. And then he could declare Paul innocent of civil charges and turn him over to the Jews for the religious charges. Festus is not concerned with pleasing the Lord. He's only concerned with pleasing the Jewish leaders of the day. Festus is choosing popularity over righteousness, compromise over doing the right thing. Unfortunately, we see the same thing today in churches. Pastors who compromise the hard truths of Scripture in order to be popular with people in their church. They know what the Bible teaches. They know how it speaks against sin, but they're afraid it will offend someone. They don't talk about hell because, well, that's offensive. So they play it down. They pretend like sin is no big deal. People come to church to feel good about themselves. To be lifted up. They come to church to be patted on the back. We can't talk about sin and hell and judgment. We don't want to be confrontational. And so they sidestep the issues. And so they proclaim a gospel void of sin and judgment in order to gain favor with people. They're just like Festus. 
And listen, when we sidestep the gospel, we're a dangerous enemy of the gospel. And we stand opposed to Christ. Church, Satan uses evil men against God's servants. And sometimes those people appear religious and sometimes it may even seem to be wanting to do the right thing. But if you are a servant of the Lord, then you better expect Satan to oppose you. It will either be with open, upfront hostility or it will be with little compromises here and there like Festus that is just destructive. Don't be surprised when it hits. Don't be taken back. Be warned that it's coming. And when you know the fight is coming, then you're warned about the fight and you can be ready. So know it's coming. Know the fight is coming and be ready for it. And so we have seen the first point is that Satan will use evil men against God's servants. Now let's see the second point. And yes, there are only two points to the sermon. Second point is this. God protects his servants to accomplish his will. Listen, we just talked about how Satan will use evil men to attack us. We just, we see this all through the book of Acts. In fact, we have read of how these men have repeatedly gone after Paul and how they've tried to murder him and how Festus and cowardice has sought to please men and therefore was being used to do the work of Satan. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that Satan is not powerful. As a matter of fact, if we don't fear the attacks of Satan, then we've most likely committed our first fatal mistake. We've misunderstood or underestimated our enemy. What I will tell you is this. If we try to face Satan and his forces in our own strength, by our own wisdom, then you will fail. However, even though Satan is powerful, God is more powerful. And thankfully, we are protected by the Lord to accomplish His will in His time until He calls us home. And as Christians, we don't necessarily fear death. We don't fear calamity or suffering or pain. You say, well, what about cancer? I say, well, I hate cancer. I hate what it does to someone. I hate what it does to the body. But at the same time, I know who's in control. Church, we have to understand who's in control. And we have to understand that when we serve the Lord, He will protect our life until we are done. And that does not mean that we have no suffering on this earth. In fact, it means that suffering may come and it may come hard. But it means that you will not die as a follower of Christ until His will is accomplished in your life. God protects His servants by directing even those in opposition to Him. God protects His servants by directing even those in opposition to Him. We really stop to consider that those who stand in opposition are ultimately under the control of the Lord, whether they realize it or not. We have already in previous weeks seen how the Lord protected Paul from the plot of the Jews to murder him. And here we are again, same scenario. The Jewish leaders want to murder Paul, but guess what the outcome is? It's the same. They, they can't do it. And though we do not see God outwardly at work this time, we must understand that God is behind the scenes orchestrating the circumstances 
and the people in order to accomplish his plan and his purpose through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, when we think that things are out of God's control, we've committed a very dangerous mistake and we've denied the absolute sovereignty of God because we say, oh, well, that's out of the control of God. God has repeatedly used Paul. God was at work behind the scenes to bring Paul to Jerusalem. Remember the reason he came to Jerusalem was to present the offering that the Gentiles had gathered for the Jewish believers. God used the council that was at Jerusalem to get Paul into the temple in the first place. Remember, he was only in there as part of a purification ritual that they had Paul going through. And so he goes into the temple. And then God brought along the Jews from Asia at just the right time and to just the right spot to see Paul. And then these Jews from Asia stirred up a riot against Paul. And God then used the commander, whose name was Lysias, to rescue Paul from the angry mob, sparing Paul's life. And then we witness how God used Paul's nephew, who overheard the plot of the Jews to kill Paul. And then he went and reported it to Paul and had him report it to Lysias. And God used the Roman Lysias to protect Paul and to save his life and to guide him to Caesarea. And then we have Felix, that is a self-seeking man-pleaser, who was also directed by God as he held off the Jews for two years. And during that time, Paul had influence on the Jewish Christians, and Luke would have time to research and begin writing the book of Acts. And now we have Festus, a new inexperienced governor who wanted to compromise, but Paul would have none of it. And Paul will, from this uh, suggested compromise that Festus gives to him, preach the gospel eventually to Agrippa and to Bernice and will end up in Rome to preach the gospel just as the Lord said he would. Humanly speaking, we can look at all this, all that Paul's gone through. We can even look at these events and think, my life's horrible. We could say, well, Paul's life was terrible, humanly speaking. You can look at your life and say, there's no way that this is God's will. When Paul brought his gift to Jerusalem, it wasn't, wasn't even received. They planned this scheme to smooth things over and it backfired. And Paul found himself in the midst of a riot and eventual rest. He spent time with Felix, who for a moment trembled at the word of God, but never converted. And Paul was never released. And now here is Festus trying to bring about a compromise that would end Paul's life. But Paul appeals to Caesar. And guess what? Paul will stay in custody. And from man's standpoint, that looks like a failure. I mean, does anybody here, does anybody here want to say, I'll sign up to go to prison? Uh, I'll go to prison. I mean, from man's standpoint, it's terrible. But not so fast. Though from man's standpoint, it appears bleak, it appears horrible. From God's standpoint, it's not. God was working all things together for the good for Paul, according to God's purpose, so that he would be glorified through the gospel of Jesus Christ before the Gentiles, before the kings and the Jewish people, just as he said in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. And, and when Paul was first converted, he, he is working behind the scenes to bring Paul to Rome, where 
There will be many in the household of Caesar and most likely even Caesar himself who will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ just as he said he would do in Acts chapter 23 verse 11 when the Lord told Paul he would go to Rome in the first place. You see church what appears out of control we could look at the life of Paul and if that's all we knew about it what appears totally out of control humanly speaking is under God's complete sovereign control. And this should reflect in how we view the circumstances of our life. It should show in how we see those times of suffering and those times of hurt and those times of pain and those times of frustration. They may seem humanly confusing if we look at them in those terms, but when we see them from God's providential perspective, they're not confusing at all. From Paul's perspective, he was in a bad situation that was about to get even worse. He did not plan to be in jail. He did not plan all of this out that he could have uh, blamed Jerusalem council. He could have said, man, that Jerusalem council, it's their problem. They, they did this to me. After all, he was in jail because of them, humanly speaking. But from God's perspective, God was bringing Paul into position in which he would share the gospel to the most influ influential people to the known world at the time. And lead him to Rome. Something Paul could never dream of doing. Church, there are times that our greatest opportunities for ministry. Or our greatest opportunities to have an impact on the life of someone else. Comes to us from God. But it comes in disguise. We see it as confusing. We see it as frustrating. And perhaps we think that these things are keeping me from reaching my full potential somehow. But that's not the case. If we see the circumstances of our life as bad luck, guess what? We will be discouraged. We will be dismayed. And we will miss the opportunity for ministry that's right in front of us. But if we submit to God's sovereignty, if we understand truly that God is using those circumstances in our lives to bring about the greatest good in your life, all for his glory, then we view those circumstances of life as opportunities that he alone gets the glory for. So we see that God Protects his servants by directing even those in opposition to him. But let's see this as well. God protects his servants through human government, which he ordained. God protects his servants through human government, which he ordained. I think maybe Mike was like reading my sermon ahead of time somehow. But anyway, um, he, he protects through human government, which he ordained. There are times that we fail to understand that God has ordained human government. When a wicked ruler gets into office or becomes a leader, it's not by accident. It's because God ordained it. Why do we even have a government in the first place? Well, Scripture answers that for us in Romans 13, 1 and 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. God has ordained government to protect those who do right and punish those who are evil. Even though governments are run often by man-pleasing people like Felix and those like Festus or even murderers like Nero, God still uses them ultimately for his purposes. As followers of Christ, we are commanded to submit ourselves to the government and the laws unless the government demands that we do something that's in violation to the commandments of God. 
Acts chapter 4, verses 19 through 20, and Acts 5, 29. God used the government to protect his servant Paul, and he still uses the government today to protect his servants. It's also not wrong for Christians to serve in the government as long as they can do so without compromising their faith. It's also not wrong for Christians to use the government's judicial system to make sure that they receive due process and legal protection. There are those who think Christians should have absolutely nothing to do with government, and they have various reasons for saying this. Some believe it's just evil. They will say things like, we are not citizens of this earth, which is correct. We are not citizens of this earth as Christians. We are citizens of heaven. And, and that is correct in some respects. But we also have repeated examples in scripture that show us that believers can and should serve in government and make use of government. We have Joseph, we have Daniel, we have Nehemiah, to name a few. Additionally, Paul's example here, even though it is descriptive of what took place, shows us that there is a proper use for the government to protect its citizens and uphold the rights of the citizens, which is what Paul does when he says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, astonishingly enough, Paul makes an acknowledgement in this passage of scripture that's kind of tucked away and sometimes we just kind of skip over it. And he says that if he's committed the crimes that he's being accused of, he would willingly die. And as a side note, this as well as other verses in the Bible make it clear that the government does have the right to capital punishment. In certain cases, which I've spoken about at length in other sermons, suffice to say that when the government takes the life of a convicted criminal who has committed serious offenses, it does not violate the sixth commandment, which is you shall not murder rather than you shall not kill, like we like to say. Now, that is not to say that there are people who are not proper or improperly incarcerated. It is to say that the judicial process should always be extremely careful to establish guilt beyond the shadow of a doubt through a fair trial. And I'm not certain that always happens on either count. Either they get, lots of times people don't get a fair trial and lots of times guilt's not established beyond a shadow of a doubt. However, that doesn't mean that the capital punishment should be abolished in the cases of like first degree murder either. But I've argued before, when you try to make the argument that capital punishment is barbaric or terrible, it's a false argument because by not enforcing capital punishment, it cheapens human life rather than elevates it. And in the U.S., we have cheapened human life to the point it no longer has any value whatsoever in the United States of America, thereby making it quite okay to murder our own children in the womb. And yet we think we have some sort of moral high ground for other nations. However, that's for another sermon. Also, we can't ignore verse 8, where Paul clearly gives his defense, which makes it clear that it's not wrong for Christians to defend themselves against false charges. I've been falsely accused of things before in my own life, even in a church where I was called into an elders meeting and falsely accused. I didn't just sit there. I defended my integrity. Now, some people were not happy with me defending my integrity. To be honest, some folks want to just be bullies or have you sit there and take what they have to say and say things like, well, Jesus was silent before his accusers. And they are right. Jesus was silent before his accusers. And Jesus was also God. 
And he knew what was going on. And he knew that he was going to the cross. And that the cross was the will of God. Paul is not silent. He gives many defenses throughout the book of Acts. He also does so in 2 Corinthians. In the book of Galatians, he defends his ministry. Here, he finally appeals to Caesar. This was the right of a Roman citizen. And once the appeal is made, it can't be stopped. And Festus has lost his chance to appease the Jews. And is about to send a Roman citizen to a trial in Rome with very weak charges. God overrules earthly events in order to protect his servants, and in this case, his servant Paul, to get him to Rome. He uses human government, in this case, to accomplish it. God has ordained the government. And whether we like it or not, whether you like who is ruler in the United States of America or not, it really does not matter. Because God is in control. God appointed him. Now that doesn't mean that we sit back and never vote or anything like that. But God appointed him. And as we have already noted, Satan will use evil men to try to discredit the gospel of Christ and to slander servants of Christ and faithful men. All the time refuse to say anything or give a defense. And it causes much damage to the gospel. So we must refuse to allow this to happen. We must refuse as faithful followers of Christ to allow the word of God to be drugged through the mud. We must refuse as faithful followers of Christ to allow his church to be stained. We must take a stand. We must defend the word of God. Now, in conclusion, I want to bring all this home for us. I got a few things I want to share with you to bring it home. First, the first thing I want us to understand to bring this home, to bring this idea of, of you know, how do we apply this passage of Scripture? Number one, we must understand that God is for us. We must understand that God is for us. If you are a servant of the Lord, God is for you, regardless of opposition. Paul knew this truth, therefore he was able to calmly defend himself. God was his defender, God was in control, and God gets the glory. And when you are a servant of the Lord, and you've done nothing wrong, and you get attacked, you can have peace because you know the truth. If if you believe the truth, if believers just grabbed onto this truth, I think it would go so far. Often this truth that God is for us is misunderstood and often it's maligned in Christian circles. But church, the simple fact of the matter is, as a follower of Christ, God is for you. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If you want to know what these things are, you got to read previously. I'm not going to read them for you this morning. What shall we say to these things? You can read the beginning of Romans chapter 8, and you'll see these things that's being referenced. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Paul's asking a rhetorical question. Because the answer is obvious. Jesus Christ. God is for you. Secondly, we have to understand that God will protect us according to his will. God will protect us according to his will. Now, now what does that mean? Some people think that the sovereignty of God is debatable, but it's, it's not debatable. It is a present reality. It brings great comfort to all believers who actually grasp it. There's no debate that God is sovereign. Some people want to debate it, but there is no debate. There is nothing more comforting than to know that the sovereign God of this universe, who had the Apostle Paul write that God is for us, which we just read, that he is working all things together for our good, which we just read. There is something comforting about knowing that every circumstance of my life, no matter how painful, no matter how frustrating, no matter how difficult that circumstance may seem to me, I can trust that God is taking that very circumstance and somehow... In some way, he's using it for my good. You say, well, pastor, how can you, how can you know that? I know that because he said he works all things together for my good. Why does he do that? He answers, why does he work all things together for my good and possibly for your good too if you are a follower of Christ? Why? Because you love him and because you are called according to his purpose. That's what he says. He's working all things together for my good if I love him and am called according to his purpose. Christian, understand that no matter your circumstances, if you love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, he's working it out for your ultimate good according to his will. God will protect you according to his will. Thirdly, we must understand that as believers, we must see everything, everything as an opportunity to proclaim God's salvation. Everything. It's not some things. It's not a few things. Everything. I know that's hard. But we must see everything as an opportunity. You're going through a bad circumstance. It's an opportunity. You're going through something frustrating. It's an opportunity. You suffered a miscarriage of a baby. It's an opportunity. You struggle with depression in your life. 
It's an opportunity. You have cancer that's not curable. It's an opportunity. Church, how often are we faced with a circumstance beyond our control and instead of seeing it as an opportunity to bear witness for Jesus Christ, we shift focus to ourselves and our circumstance. We shift focus from an opportunity to share the gospel to me, me, me. Oh Lord, why would you do this to me? I can't understand this problem, this issue. This is more than I can bear. It's more than I can handle. I don't know what to do. And we miss the chance to tell how great our God is. And we miss the chance to tell and to proclaim the majesty and the glory of Christ and how He paid the price for my sin. How often He shows me mercy and that He can show His mercy to every single sinner. And He did so on the cross of Calvary. Oh church, no matter our suffering, we will never suffer like Jesus suffered. And we should use that opportunity. You say, well, pastor, that's hard. You bet it's hard. Oh, but to proclaim the glory of Christ. Because you know what? Nothing can steal away the salvation that he has given to you. And he is working that circumstance for your good, church. Lastly, as we follow a Savior, who laid down his life for us, we should be ready to pay the price of our commitment to him. We put great values on our lives as Christians. And I'm not saying that we should not value our life, but I'm saying that Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verses 24 through 25, but I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What I'm saying is this, that the gospel should take precedence in our life and we must be willing to pay the price we must be willing to pay the price. Church, too many Christians are willing to compromise. They're willing to compromise the truth of the gospel to protect their wealth. It's just a little lie on my tax forms. It's just, it's just not the complete truth. It's partial truth. Little compromise to protect their wealth, a little compromise to protect their position, a little compromise to protect their power. And I submit to you this morning that if you're a follower of Christ, the most important thing is not your job, it's not your power, and it's not your money. It's not the stuff that we think is most important. The most important thing, if you're a follower of Christ, and if only Christians could grasp this, it would revolutionize churches, it would change cities. If we could grasp the most important thing in every Christian's 
life is the truth of the gospel. That's the most important thing. The truth of the gospel. We like to run around and say that we're followers of Christ, but if it's so important to us, if we really are followers of Christ, then why aren't we sharing it? You say, well, well, we, we got we to gotta go do this or go do that. No, you need to be sharing the gospel if you're a follower of Christ. You need to be talking with your neighbor. You need to be talking with your co-worker. You need to be talking. You need to be discussing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I discuss with my neighbors the gospel. Sometimes I think they avoid me. That's what you should be doing. So that you would hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. As you walk through this life as a follower of Christ, you will be faced with many temptations to compromise your commitment to Jesus. And you either take a stand for him or you won't. And I'm saying that even if it means prison, even if it means death, we must trust that God's sovereign hand of protection will be on us in order for us to accomplish his will and the only question for you to answer this morning if you're a follower of Christ is this will you trust him and are you currently trusting him that's it it's the only question that's the only thing for you to answer do I trust in the sovereignty of God do I trust him do I trust that he is in control of all things in my life. And do I trust that every single thing that comes into my life is an opportunity to share the gospel? Do you trust him? Or do you trust self? And maybe you're here this morning, you said, Pastor, I'm going through some hard stuff. And maybe you, you just need some prayer that you will trust. God's working that out. He's giving you opportunity to share the gospel. You'll be standing down front. Maybe you want somebody to pray with you. Maybe you want to pray in your pew. Maybe you want to come up here and pray. You can do that. Maybe today for the first time in your life the gospel made sense. And you say, I need to surrender my life to Christ. I'll be standing down front. Just come and grab my hand and say, I need to know Jesus. I need to know about this Jesus you're talking about. I can talk to you after the service. You can hang out afterwards, talk to me later. But if you feel the need to respond this morning, we want to give you that opportunity. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. I'll be standing down front. If you feel you need to respond, then I'd love to meet you down front. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you so much.